Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. I'm here in Montreal at the C2 conference with Angela Arantz, who has a fantastic career in retail. We're going to talk about what she's seen through her experience at Burberry and Apple and a bit about where retail is going. Angela, thanks for joining RBC Disruptors. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us how you got started in retail. What sparked the fire? Yeah, you know, it's funny growing up in a tiny town in the heart of the Midwest and, you know, living vicariously through fashion magazines and teaching myself how to sew. And, and I don't think you know at a young age what you want to do, but you know what you love, right? No different than an actress or a musician or a... And I loved fashion. I loved the art of fashion. And so um, I ended up at Ball State University one day visiting my sister. And I saw a big sign and it talked about merchandising and marketing classes. And, and it was literally a sign in my life that said, that's me, that's where I'm going. And, uh, and up until that point, I didn't know, I just knew what I loved. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a tiny town in Indiana called New Palestine, which most people have never heard of. It's about 20 miles southeast of Indianapolis and went to Ball State University about an hour outside of Indianapolis and uh, have a merchandising and a marketing degree. And I come from very, very humble beginnings. You ended up at Liz Claiborne. What did you learn there? Yeah, I learned a tremendous amount there, but I think that it's kind of maybe important to even go a little bit further back than that. So I, prior to Liz Claiborne, I was at Donna Karen for a number of years, and prior to Donna Karen, I was at a big corporation called Warnico. And I didn't jump around a lot. I spent a lot of time at each one of those, vested in a number of them. But, but I worked for Linda Walkner at Warnico, where I learned a tremendous amount of the, the basic skills of retailing. I say more of the left brain, the operational, the financial side of it. Then I go to Donna. I learned all about idiocomo and fabrics and the art, if you will. So that by the time I got to Liz, I was able to take my right and my left brain, combine that with Paul Sharon's incredible leadership gifts. So, you know, each step of the way you learn something else. And I always say that each one of those is preparing you for whatever your next calling is, right? Each one of those is a warm-up act for what you're going to do next. Everyone here is talking about AI, and I often think about that left brain, right brain dynamic and how we have to get that back as humans. That's mm -hmm. how we're going to thrive mm -hmm. with robots doing so much mm -hmm. around us. Is that something that is best developed in the workplace, or is that something our schools can develop mm -hmm. a little better? Left brain, right brain dynamics? Yeah, you know, it's an incredible question. And I've often said, you know, the number one thing I believe missing in the education system today are our teaching kids how to tune in to their basic God-given instincts. We're born with them. I mean, they're so intuitive, but you go into class and it's like, no stop, right? Memorize, et cetera. And, and, I, and that's not gonna be the future. You know, as a third of the jobs are disrupted, et cetera, we're going to be dependent on our instincts and our individual gifts. And so I think there should be intuition classes from pre-K all the way up to university we have these incredible instincts, and imagine if we honed those as much as we had our minds over the years. Let's talk about Burberry. So probably your first great challenge as a leader. You were CEO for eight years, I think it was, 06 to 14. Yeah. Burberry's got an extraordinary history. Probably a lot of people don't appreciate it. It invented the trench coat right, for yeah. officers in the trenches of, yeah. uh, of, of World War One, I, I think it was, and uh, George Mallory wore Burberry clothing mm -hmm. <laughs> while, uh, while scaling Everest in the 1920s. Uh, it's not how we see the company today. So when you take over, and that's not different from a whole lot of legacy brands, they've got 
legacy. They've got history, tradition, that's fantastic. But that doesn't buy you the future. As a leader, particularly in the fashion and retail space, mm -hmm. how do you manage that transition of great history but ne needing to be in the here and now, relevant, mm -hmm. being a, an it brand? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you create that? Yeah, and I think, you know, being an it brand, an it brand at 100 million or it brand at a billion or an it brand at 10 billion, right? I mean, I think that's the, regardless, you have to have a foundation. So when we went into Burberry, we got 100 of the top executives together and said, okay, um, some had been there for 30 years, 40 years, you know, some were brand new, et cetera, and, and sat down and said, what does Burberry have that the other big luxury peers don't? Right? I mean, let's just put it out on the table. Mm. You know, Gucci was born from shoes and LV was born from luggage. And right, each, each company does have one place where Ralph was born from a tie. Right? Each company has, and Burberry was the only one that was born from a coat. Owned their own manufacturing facilities, just like the Italians do in leather goods, et cetera. But yet outerwear was only 20% of the business. And most of the executives weren't wearing it, right? And so, okay, do we have an opportunity there, right? It was also the only British luxury brand of scale. What are we doing to amplify our Britishness? Mm. Online, so we made a decision very early on that anything we would do, we'd put it through the British lens first. The music, the models, everything. And we instinctively felt that we should, that all of our peers were targeting what we called the lady who lunches. And we said, we think we have an opportunity to attract the next generation. Then, of course, we hired the consulting company, and I say, confuse me with some facts. And the great news was that China, India, all of the, the up-and-coming, big developing nations were, on average, 25 years younger than the developed markets were. So that just reaffirmed that we were you know, going to target the millennial consumer, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, we put together a very clear, clear strategy, very clear five-year plan for the team, and those were our lenses. And what, what were the smartest things you did to make Burberry, which can be an old-fashioned, it can be you know, grandma's brand mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, or at least used to be. Mm -hmm. How did you make it young and hip? Well, again, you know, when you got a partner like Christopher, who is young and hip, and, uh, and then he hires the most incredible design team, and I you know, hired all of the supporting um, staff, if you will, you know, around that. And, and I, I said very early on that Christopher was not just the chief creative officer. I called Christopher the brand czar. And I told the teams, I said, so therefore there should be no confusing, confusion. Anything the consumer sees will go through his office. Because I think to create a great brand, product is only a piece of it. It has to be everything. It, it has to be the marketing. It has to be the merchandising online. It has to be. So, so we set him up very early on as the brand czar so that he could make sure that, that all of those pieces were tied together, et cetera. And, and, to me, and, and that goes from offices around the world to the corporate headquarters to, you know, we would change the image online and we'd change those store windows and the landing page and the images in the headquarters. I mean, we just became a machine and that's branding. So that sounds a lot like another company that you know and love. Uh, we'll get to uh, Apple in a little bit. But this notion of a brand czar makes a lot of sense, but in some companies it can be the bottleneck, can lead to some control freaky behaviors, can create cultural dysfunctions. Mm -hmm. But how do you ensure that the culture fits around that and that your brand czar fits with the culture? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, just like you're creating a brand, you're also creating a culture, and you're creating a culture by each individual that you hire. I think it was one of Walt Disney's quotes years and years ago when, when he would hire people into Disney, he would say, this is Mickey Mouse, and Mickey Mouse has big black ears and a red bow tie, and, you know, bottom line, don't mess with Mickey Mouse, right? And so I think, I think when you go into a brand and into a company, you have respect. You, you know, no different if you join a sitcom or you join a, a band, right? That's who they are. That's what they play. They're not bringing you in to change all of that. They're bringing you, you know, so anybody we hired, do you understand our mission? Do you understand our strategy? And then more importantly, do we like you? Do we trust you? Do we believe you will always do what's best for the greater good of the whole versus your own ego? Because I believe that business is a team sport, not an individual sport, and especially when you're running a huge public company. What secrets of hiring have you developed over the years? There's a handful of things. So I always feel that they wouldn't be in front of me if they didn't have the IQ. So I go a little deeper on the EQ. And one of the secrets when I was in New York and I kept doing it in London, if I really like someone, then I would actually take them out for a meal because I wanted to see how they interacted with the person who greeted them. I wanted to see how they, if they said please and thank you to the waiter or the waitress, and right, I wanted to see them out in a social setting because that would inform how they would handle employees on a retail floor, et cetera. So IQ, EQ, left brain, right brain, how analytical versus how creative thinking, problem solving. And then I used to say yesterday, today, tomorrow. Where are they in that spectrum? And it's hard to find, some people are way out there, they're dreamers, they can't execute, and they don't let the past inform them of, of prior mistakes, et cetera. Because I think you need somebody who, who respects the past, but understands what's happening today in order to optimize it and anniversary it, et cetera. But you also need them to be able to look out three, four years and feel what's coming. And so on that spectrum as well. So those were kind of my three IQ, EQ, left brain, right brain, and yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I could usually then size up who they were and, and get a really good feel after a couple of meals. And Where do you put yourself on the spectrum? A little of each. I'm probably more 40, 45% tomorrow. I'm probably 25, 30% yesterday in the balance in the middle. But I, I tend to thrive on, you know, I love to run ahead and look around the corner and warn everybody what's coming, so. So take us to that moment when you uh, ran around the corner at Apple, 2014. Tim Cook mm -hmm. convinces you to uh, jump. You've had a great run at Burberry. Mm -hmm. How did he, first of all, how did he approach you? And then how did he convince you? Yeah, so of course he had his team, you know, I mean, I think they had a search firm and his, his head of, of, of people at that point in time, you know, kind of reach out. And, and I'm loyal. I'm so loyal. And I get so, you know, I guess I also feel so blessed because my work has never been work. It's my life. It's just, it is, it's my life calling and I put everything I have around it. So, um, so I'm pretty sure I didn't take the calls or take the meetings for probably the first six to nine months because I was happy and I, I mean, I had my dream job and, and now I've got two kids starting university in London. So it's like, no, please leave me alone. I, I'm finally, you know, happy, settled, et cetera. And, um, and then it's actually interesting. I think it was around maybe 2012, um, Fortune did a big feature on Burberry. They did a wonderful job, it's a wonderful story, and, and I was on the cover holding an iPad. And they called me up at the last minute and they said, we're really sorry, but we're doing this thing on Tim Cook as well. And so you're gonna be on the cover everywhere in the world, but we're gonna put Tim on the cover in the US. But your feet are still gonna be inside. So I was like, well, 
he's a lot bigger than I am, so maybe more people will buy it, at least they'll read about Burberry. Well, that was actually when I got the first call, because I think Apple read about Burberry, and that's the first time his team reached out. But finally, you know, you finally you, you have a cup of coffee and you listen, and, and it was funny. I'll never forget the first meeting with him, because he is such a man of peace. And I remember leaving him saying, how do you do this? How do you, how do you run something so titanic, but yet, I mean, he's so centered and so, I had tremendous admiration for that after, after the first meeting. And it just, you know, I, I used my instincts and my instincts were, timing's not right, not right. And so that, you know, that dance kind of went on for a year or so. And, and at one point then I had agreed to, I was in California and I'd agreed to meet with him again. And I had agreed to, you know, meet with some of the senior team, et cetera. And there was just literally something he said. And I think it's that way always, right? It was the same thing at Burberry. There was one thing Rosemary Bravo said that just, all of a sudden, you know, you can't sleep. So it was one thing Tim said, and I had done a TED Talk on human energy. And, and he said, you know, Eddie sent your TED Talk around. He said, it's, it's kind of gone viral around Apple. And, and then he just looked at me and he goes, you know you're supposed to be here. And he, and he said it with such calmness and such, and I'm like, how do you know that? And he said, trust me, like, you're supposed to be here. I couldn't get that off my mind. I'm a it's pretty well known I'm a pretty spiritual person and that was a, somewhat of a, of, a, of a spiritual sign to me and, and, and I thought, okay. And then, you know, and then as time goes on, when you are a driven, competitive person, you know, I also then would tell myself, you know, would I be happy if I woke up in five years from now and said, I wish I would have. It's like, no, I don't ever want to wake up and say, I wish I would have, regardless of how insecure, you know, how old I was, an upheaval to my entire peaceful life I've just created, but no, I never want to wake up and say, I wish I would have. What was the challenge that they uh, laid down for you at Apple? You know, they didn't lay out a lot of the challenges to start with. They had a, a gentleman in prior to me that didn't last very long, and, um, and they really chalked it up to leadership and just, you know, connecting with the teams. And, um, but they didn't talk a lot about the challenges, so I kind of took those upon myself. And I knew at my age it would be a totally new sector. I had spent my entire career in fashion. And, and, I, and I told him in one of the first interviews, I am not a techie. And he very calmly said, well, you know, I, we got tens of thousands of those. I don't really think we need another techie. He was like, no matter what I said. And so, so my own insecurity said, you're not a techie. You know, oh my gosh, it's the most successful retailer on the planet. Their productivity per square foot, et cetera, et cetera. How do you top that? How do you, right? So I went through all of this in my mind. And, you know, I'd never led that many thousands of people before in 36 languages, it, you know. And, and I didn't talk their language. I don't know the acronyms and hardware and software, and I know, I, and I'm, you know, not an engineer whatsoever. And so I had all of my own: the scale, the the success, the everything. And once you get through all of that, and you get in, and and I've, you know, just learned to listen. My father always quoted tons of stuff to us, and he always said, "Better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and relieve them of all doubt." And it, it has always stuck with me, so I tend to always do a lot of listening that first couple of months, listening and feeling, and, and, you know, and then when you get the confidence and you say, you know, you're a leader. Apple stores are phenomenal places, and I often wonder when I walk into one why anyone is there, because so much of what you can get there, mm -hmm. you don't need to go to a store for, <laughs> and yet they're packed. Mm -hmm. um, it's amazing.
what have they figured out? What did they, and I guess this was, was under Steve, what did he figure out mm -hmm. about the human need to go to a crowded store? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rather than stay at home and just, with a few clicks, get what you need sent to you. I think that, you know, and Steve's spirit deeply lives on in the company, and, mm -hmm. and especially with those original retail um, employees that he hired. And, and he told all of them, I mean, probably nearly 20 years ago when they opened the first store now, he told all of them then, you're not allowed to sell. He said, your job is to enrich customers' lives, and you need to do that through the lens of education. And so that is a pillar. I mean, you'll hear, you'll hear a lot of executives talk about enriching lives and, you know, and education, et cetera. So, um, so I, think that, I think that that is their purpose. That is their, right? And so, and I think it's a very different premise from a typical retailer where I'm on commission, I've got a quota, I've got a, so their goal is how do they teach you something you don't know? How do they share with you something about that design or that software or, right? And that's all in the steps of service. That's all, you know, what the teams are trained to do. Um, but, they, but their goal when you walk in is to enrich your life. And, and even in the MPS measurements, I mean, those are things that they're measured on. What is the long-term challenge that you found most difficult to address in the Apple stores? Hmm. You know, I don't think there's, I think when you run a business that big and that global and, you know, nearly 70,000 employees when I left, there's a challenge a day. I think that, and, and if it is a challenge, it's your job to fix the challenge. So when I came in, there were a lot of systems that weren't connected. There wasn't a way to communicate. You know, we had put a lot of um, comms platforms in place at Burberry so that we could communicate to 11,000 people. But there really wasn't a way I could communicate with 55 when I started than 70,000 people. So we had to build a lot. We built, we built a hello app that greeted them every morning when they came in. It would say hello and tell them about the key things they needed to do. And they'd swipe and delete as they, you know, kind of did those throughout the day. Um, we created a social platform inside called Loop where they could actually, everyone could talk to each other and problem solve among themselves um, and, um, and with using auto-translate. So, so didn't, regardless of the language, they could all still communicate with each other. So we put, so there's always problems, but I always say that it's your job to solve the problem, right? You've identified what I think is one of the great challenges for any retailer, which is people. Um, it's the third D, as you say, often not terribly well paid, not well trained for, often an entry uh, opportunity. Minimize the problem. So how do you, how do you hire, develop, and retain for that? If that's such a critical success mm -hmm. factor mm -hmm. for an enterprise even as gigantic as mm -hmm. as Apple. Yeah, you know, I started doing this again. I you know I've always said that when you're in retail you are in the people business. And if you don't believe that, then you should not be in retail. And years ago, even in New York. So all these retailers who are going to automated checkouts, for instance, or trying to de-people their stores, is that a mistake? You know, I, don't, I mean, you know, far be it from me to say that it's a mistake. I think that it, you know, I think it also depends what, what it is, how commodity it is, and how high touch it is, and um, you know, how complicated it is, but I guess, 
I've always felt that there is a role that people have to play. Again, go back to our conversation about instincts. You know, we connect when we look each other in the eyes and our prefrontal cortex opens up and we, right, we do things together, et cetera. So I think that there is, there is always a place for it, for the human side of it. You just have to figure out what your unique experience is, what your, as a human, you know, everybody wants to go hang out in places where they feel welcome or like they belong or that people really like them or love them, right? At whether it's a club, whether it's a, right? It, that's just basic human. And, and so if you strip all that away or you amplify it, you know, John, how are you? Haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. How'd the red jacket, you know? You're building a lifelong relationship. And isn't that, as humans, what we long for more than anything, especially if isolation is the number one disease in the world today? So I've always leaned in to the human side of it. And, and I, you'll have AI and you'll have automation, and that will also cause the greatest wave of entrepreneurialism the planet will ever see. And what's gonna differentiate people, right? When you look back over your experiences, it's going to be how somebody made you feel. So back to the question of how you hire, train and, re yeah. and retain for that. How, how, do you do, how do you go about the people side of uh, the retail business? Yeah, it's, um, you know, again, you create your culture and then you're looking for people that I say are culturally compatible. Right? This is our vision, our mission, and our purpose. So everybody you interview, are they aligned to your vision, your mission, and your purpose? And you know, it's interesting, at, at, at Burberry we used to laugh because people would have to meet with like 10 different people before they'd get hired. Because you're not hiring for a month or a year. I want it to be a lifelong career with them, right? And so we did that at Burberry. We thought that was extreme. I get to Apple, on average, a retail associate could go through 15 interviews before they ever get hired. So again, Apple was doing the same thing that we were doing on a small scale. You wanna make sure that you're putting, every position is different. And I always say, our jobs, it's like a chess game. We've got to put the right people in the right place at the right time. It is strategic and it's an art. And you do that right, they stay with you. The longer they stay with you, the more knowledgeable they are, you know, the better they service customers, et cetera. So, so, so much of it, you know, it's not ticket a box, I got them hired. You gotta hire the right people for the right reasons at the right time, and then you have to keep them. You have to acknowledge them. You have to celebrate them. You have to move them. I mean, it's why at Apple, in my five years, we totally redrafted all of the retail rules. We created six new positions so that they, they could move even more. At one point, 10% of the workforce was mobile. You know, we wanted to move hundreds of kids to China to help get those stores open. And the more that you do that, the, the longer they're gonna stay with you. You know, that's why retention rates went from 61 to nearly 89% in five years. And you were at Apple during some pretty politically contentious times for Tim Cook, where he started to take on issues very publicly. And I think he did, did it because that's who he is, that's what he believes in. But I've also got to believe that was really helpful on the retail front in terms of retention and, uh, and the morale of your frontline front employees when they see their CEO standing up 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, Tim's always been very connected to the retail teams. I mean, from doing Christmas videos to them, and he loves the retail teams. He, he says it's his favorite part of the business. So, no, they are behind him, and he is behind them, and always. The stores, and this is uh, on, on the public record, are facing uh, certain headwinds. What do you think are going to be the biggest challenges for the Apple Store idea, for the concept, going into the 2020s? What's it up against? Yeah, I don't think it's just the Apple stores. And, and, and I don't know that the Apple stores are facing headwinds because that's not in the public domain. They don't split out the retail performance at all. So, um, so I think that the new store design, the new experience, um, the retention rate, the NPS scores are at historic highs. I don't feel that Apple retail is facing near the headwinds. Um, that, that maybe a lot of other retailers are because we've spent the last five years almost changing and evolving, you know, so all, and, and refocusing, if you will, right? So I think it's funny, people talk about China and the aggregate, but there's 22 provinces that are all very uniquely different. It's no different than states in America, right? It's the same thing with retail. Is retail a strip mall selling commodities? Is retail a luxury mall? Is retail Madison Avenue in New York? I mean, so I think it's hard to put it all in the aggregate as well. So we shifted the focus over a bit, and, and, and Apple is not in strip centers, is not in C and D malls. They tend to play in A, B, and then major urban markets. And if you look at what's happening in the A and the B malls, the Westfields, the, and where they're reinvesting, and they've taken food and beverage up to 30 plus percent, they're all outperforming. Traffic, transactions, everything. Tourism into the top 25 cities in the world is not going down at all. You know, thanks to 200 million Chinese consumers that are now traveling internationally, when, right, when only 20% of Americans have passports. So you have, from London to Paris to LA to New York, you have, each of those cities has over 50 million visitors coming in. I argue that retail isn't evolving fast enough to serve them. When I started at Burberry, we had no Mandarin-speaking associates in any stores. When I started at Apple, they were on an iPad in LA trying to talk to Chinese consumers. So I think that you know everyone just has to, you gotta understand what's happening around you. You know, it's just so easy to say the demise of physical retail. You know, maybe locally where people can buy commodities online through Amazon, et cetera, but you know, big global brands, they just have to evolve everything so in order to service the new customers that are coming. Retail as a destination, in some ways, is, is there's nothing new to that, but it's also become a, a phenomenon. You mentioned the malls that are now destinations, high-end destinations. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're going to see even more of that in the years ahead? Yeah, from what I see in the pipeline, absolutely. I mean, look what Jewel's doing at the Singapore airport. Uh, in incredible, a seven-story waterfall. I mean, you know, hiking trails in a forest in a in a in a ten-story dome. I mean, so yeah. But I think they have to become so much more, you know, destinations, if you will. Look what Don Gersman's doing at American Dream in New Jersey. I mean, and he is dreaming and doing some incredible things. So, but I think the difference is, you know, we got into this mode of, you know, if we build it, they will come. They don't have to come anymore because they can buy it cheaper, faster somewhere else. So you better give them a unique, either unique product or a unique proposition or, right? You have to give them a reason to come. Airports are fascinating. 
they've, I mean, they've, they've always had shopping duty-free, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they've become sort of retail palaces now. The airport seems like a, uh, an accessory. I mean, Singapore, you mentioned, mm -hmm. is the best example of this. Where do you think that thinking will be applied next? It's so interesting. Again, we talked about how you know things ebb and flow, right? Centralized, decentralized. Well, it's no different with urban, suburban. And I think what's hap what I see happening in America and I see happening around Europe is what we typically would have called a tier two city. You know, you have you have the next generation that was born in suburbia, but they don't want to live in suburbia. They want to live in Nashville and Louisville and Austin, and and so they're migrating back to these. And so I think you see now these. You know, it's not just the New Yorks and the LAs. You see these other cities now, Boulder, Georgetown, I mean, really start to, as the next generation wants to live there. So um, you see, I, it, to me, that's the, to me, that over the course of the next five to 10 years will be where, where I, I think a big opportunity for small and large retailers. Through malls, or do you think there will be a new generation that yeah, will no, move I mean, beyond I, the mall. I, I think the street becomes the mall. The street I, as we've known it? The, the main I think, street? Yeah, I think, and again, it's not a high street. I'm not talking about a New York City. Typically in a Nashville, there's, you know, one or two streets that, you know, or in an Austin, there might be four or five. But I think, take a Montreal, right? What are those couple of streets? You know, the mile end. I mean, you know, that becomes a destination. And in essence, it just becomes a mall without a roof but it's a destination where you go, you hang out for a number of hours, you have a meal, you know, light entertainment, you wander around and shop, you meet people there, I mean, it's a hangout. And so I don't know if it's the mall per se, um, you know, I, I think maybe the mall has to be rebranded a bit, but I think you will still have destinations where people wanna go and they wanna be there for, you know, for a while and, and watch other people and meet other people and, how does the, the mall need to be rebranded? You know, it's funny. At Apple, I said that the big new flagships we were building, I couldn't even call them stores. So I said they're town squares. They're gathering places where everyone's welcome. to. You can absolutely buy. A third of the people are coming for service, but another third are coming to learn, to attend a Today at Apple experience, et cetera. So... So I said, it, it's, just, it's not really a store, and, and store almost takes it down. It's so much more than that. And so I think it's kind of the same thing. I don't know if you know the Oculus in Lower Manhattan, yeah. right? And I think that was a bit of their vision, right? It's a magnificent art sculpture that means something bigger to everyone who comes down. But the way they built the atrium with the acoustics and, and all of the entertainment they envisioned, that's a gathering place. That's a, and then there happens to be incredible shops around it. But it's, it's a place for people to come and be inspired. And So we'll, we'll have these jewels, literally jewels and palaces, airports, malls perhaps. What about everything else in retail? Does it, the strip mall, the, the secondary and tertiary street, the corner store as we knew it growing up, do those survive? Yeah, and again, I don't think that, I think it's hard to, to glom them all together like that. I think you have to decide where. So if these, if these Nashvilles of the world are really coming up, of course they're going to survive there. 
right? But every, cities move and shift over time. So I don't think you can make a blanket statement that every mom and pop store is going away. I think the opposite. I think some of them will start to flourish as the next generation comes back into these towns. So will every town, will every, of course not. But I don't, I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, about strip malls. I think that anything without a unique proposition or unique products absolutely risks because it's, you know, anything that's over commoditized is easier online. So, but I think it's hard to just say one. Incredible technologies at uh, play. We're also seeing a generational shift. Do you think millennials are going to be physical shoppers to the extent that boomers were? One of my most favorite new platforms in the world is Airbnb Experiences, right? And, and the next generation, right, Uber is functional. But, and, and doing an Airbnb rental is amazing, et cetera. But, but all of a sudden now, I can go to LA and I can absolutely shop and buy something. Or I can buy surfing lessons from a local surfer. Or I can buy an hour out hiking behind the Hollywood sign that I, you couldn't do before. So I think when I say shopping, it's share of wallet. And I do believe that experiences are going to play an even more important role as products become more commoditized. So I think it's, I think it's just another, another piece of it, and especially as the world has gone so digital, so I think the next generation is longing more for unique experiences. So back to your formula of intuition plus data. Uh, many of these experience providers thrive on data um, mm -hmm. and maybe less on intuition. Mm -hmm. Are we at risk of starting to shape our experiences based on our data, but uh, collective data and a whole bunch of algorithms that say, hey, John, today would be a great day to learn surfing, even though I've never even thought of that. Mm -hmm. But some data machine is coming up with that. Is retail, including the retailing of experiences, going to go that way into a data deterministic world, if I can call it that? You know, I don't know, but I think that, you know, I think again, we're humans and, we're, and, and it's our choice. And so it's no different than your friends say, hey, I did this, and you, you choose. Well, well, that sounds great, I'm going to do it or I'm not, right? Or, and so I think that you, may, you will absolutely have more things served up to you, and I'm, and I'm not talking about Airbnb at all, but, I, but you will absolutely, as AI really starts to kick in, we will all. And, and, and like we don't now, right, as we search, et cetera. So, um, so you will absolutely have more. But, but that doesn't mean that you don't have your own dreams and your own, you know, I want to go hot air ballooning. It doesn't know that about you, right? That may just be something you've always dreamed of doing. And, and so I think that, I think, again, as humans, we just need to, you know, we need to keep those instincts and keep those dreams and, and, and we're gonna have to more and more and more and more because automation will disrupt jobs and, and, and AI will disrupt a tremendous amount of jobs and from that will come entirely new industries and entire, so I think we're just going into a whole different age. It's that, you know, it's, again, it's back to that big versus small versus I think you're gonna see a huge wave. I think you're gonna see a huge- Do you think we'll have a wave back to, to small? I think, you're, I think in the next three to five years, you will have the greatest wave of entrepreneurialism that has hit the planet in years, yes. What's gonna drive that? Why today? A third of the people are gonna lose their jobs in the next five years. And they'll become entrepreneurs. 
They so have to. Is this the gig economy? Partly. With the they craft, have to. The, the, the craft economy. So people become providers. Yeah, I think that you'll in, go in smaller communities. And I think I think and all the all the millennials and the Gen Zs, et cetera, that are moving into the smaller towns, I actually think it's what they want to. Right? And it's maybe why they're not going to some of the big malls that so this is an interesting challenge to one of the existential arguments about retail, uh, which essentially says it's about aggregation. So this is the Amazon model, uh, that the more you can aggregate, the more you learn about people's preferences, and we like to think we're individual, but really we're, we're, uh, we're not that different uh, within, our, within our species. And those who can aggregate, be it Facebook or Amazon, can figure out what people need, and then optimize the delivery of that mm -hmm. product or, or service. Mm -hmm. So size wins. Mm -hmm. it sounds like you're taking a different tack, that size doesn't win, that there will be this little sort of quiet anti-Amazon revolution of craftspeople, local servers, yeah, people dealing both. direct with I think with it's customers. both. I think, I think it's both. I don't think it's an either or, right? Here's my thing. I turn my water on in the morning. That wasn't always the case. I turn my lights on. The point is, I just expect them to work. We yeah. will just expect Amazon to deliver our commodities, right? My refrigerator will be empty and I, would, I will expect the refrigerator to order that milk. So I think Amazon is almost the next utility company. And they will absolutely have a titanic purpose. But I believe that as humans, we will continue to long, right? Because our level of happiness will continue to go up and we'll long for new experiences and new things. And So if I'm a 25-year-old uh, entrepreneur setting out in one of these uh, future centers to create my own business, mm -hmm. maybe I could be 75, maybe it doesn't, doesn't <laughs> matter. What should I be thinking about? What question should I ask myself if I'm trying to create a retail experience or a retail provider for mm -hmm. the 2020s? <clears throat> yeah, and I think you can look outward or you can look inward. Because I think that, I think you'll only confuse yourself if you try and look out. I think you need to look inside of yourself and say, what am I passionate about? What am I, you know, what do I die to wake up every morning? What do I love to do, you know, in my spare time, et cetera? I think as much as you keep yourself centered around what is instinctively, innately, your passion, your purpose, you will have a much higher probability of success. What breaks your heart that you want to fix, that you want to make better, right? And then, and then, and then you're so driven to make that, you know, and, 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 it does, and it can have, it can be social impact. I mean, hungry kids could break your heart and you're going to help fix that. It doesn't matter. But I, I do believe that, I think, you know, I, I don't believe that there's a get rich quick scheme. I think, it, I think that we're all individuals and we're all creative thinkers and innovators. And, and I, would, I would urge everyone to look inside first. And What's your passion? Mm -hmm. What breaks your heart? Hmm. Yeah, you know, having three kids and, and growing up in a small town in Indiana, just a few miles away from what there then was the largest orphanage in the state, kids that are born into situations that they, it's not their fault. 
so our personal foundation, I mean, I, I tend to center a lot around kids. The Burberry Foundation that we created and put 1% of the company's profits, and it was all for children. It was all to help unlock their creative thinking, to give them hope, to give them, today at Apple, all free sessions. Anybody can come. Schools can schedule field trips. So I just, you know, the inequality, it's not their fault. They're helpless. So, yeah, that breaks my heart. Mm. You started your career in fashion, and we're seeing a lot of interesting, even some weird things going on in the fashion retailing world. Things like clothes sharing, or uh, mm -hmm. having paying a, a fee for uh, clothes, whether it's monthly or yearly. Where do you think this is going to take us? Mm -hmm. It's not going to stop. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And to me, it's just another option, right? And we have it everywhere else, right? We've had secondhand everywhere else. And, and it's funny because all of the kids would have shopped vintage for years, right? That in essence is, it just hasn't been institutionalized and it hasn't been digitized like it is being now. Whether you call it clothes sharing or, or, or something else or the secondary market as you referenced, how should brands, if you were back at Burberry for instance, or at uh, Liz Claiborne, be thinking about this? I think they have to think that it is absolutely a real force and they can either control it as a part of their vertical structure or it's no different than when companies started going online, right? And, and they, you could either build online yourself or you could work through the ukes of the world, right? And, and, you know, or Amazon or et cetera. And so, and, and a lot of companies, some did this, some did this, so it's what's best for you. But it is a force that's not going away. It is absolutely, the next generation doesn't really want to own a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Be it cars, be it homes, be it expensive clothing. So it's, it's a trend and it's not going to stop anytime soon. I can wrap up with a final question about what retail is going to look like 10 years out. I mean, you've spoken it, to that in a number of ways in this conversation, but how would you sum up your thoughts of what retail 2030 looks like? Mm -hmm. It'll be much more intuitive, which is where we started. Um, it'll be so much more ubiquitous, right? You won't, you won't have to go somewhere. You won't have to sit at your computer. Right? You'll be able to ask. You'll be able to. And it'll be so proactive because your appliances will know, you know, hey, John, you're out of milk. Should I have more delivered for you next week? Hey, John, I see you're out of milk, but I see you're going on, on holiday next week. So do you want me to make that the week after, right? I think it'll just become ubiquitous and, and not everything. There will still be an experiential piece because we're humans. But I do think no different than water and electricity that there will be the basic side of retail that'll become just almost utility. What a great conversation. Angela, thank you for being part of RBC Disruptors. More than welcome, thank you. Thanks for listening to RBC Disruptors. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation using the hashtag RBC Disruptors.